This is Take a Leaf with Green Writers Press. I'm your host, Heather McCabe, and this week we're taking a leaf out of Vermont author Sarah Ward's book, Aesop Lake. One warm May night at the town reservoir, 17-year-old Lita Keo sees her boyfriend do something awful. She wants to forget it ever happened, but David needs her to be his alibi, and is willing to destroy her family if she refuses. Trapped, Lita must choose between the truth, her boyfriend, and her family. Jonathan Tanner Eels feels like an outsider. He's gay, and life in rural Vermont hasn't been as idyllic as he hoped it would be. When Jonathan and his boyfriend Ricky are attacked during a night swim, Jonathan manages to escape, but must watch, helpless, as Ricky is beaten. Jonathan, plagued by trauma and fear, wrestles with anger and shame in the aftermath of the crime. That summer, Lita and Jonathan are swept together by chance, and both must reckon with fundamental questions of loyalty and courage. What does it mean to speak the truth when a lie protects the ones you love? Will Lita put the fate of her family and her boyfriend first, or can Jonathan persuade her to tell the truth? So hi, Sarah. How are you today? Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. It's nice to be here. I'm glad. And thanks for joining us for our first podcast. I think it's going to be a really special book to introduce everyone to. Great. Yeah, it's, I feel like I, I hold a special place getting to be the launch. I'm glad. I'm- <laughs> um, so just to start off, do you think you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I am the author of Aesop Lake, and I have been writing poetry and fiction for um, many, many years, but this is my first um, traditionally pu- published novel. I, and. Um, In my day job, I am a social worker by training, and I currently am the associate director of the Child Welfare Training Partnership for the state of Vermont and the University of Vermont's um, child welfare system. So I oversee all the training that we provide to social workers and foster parents and things like that. That's wonderful. That's a little bit of who I am. (laughs) I'm also a mom of of an 18-year-old and a 21-year-old daughter. And, um, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Do you feel like kind of your background, both in social work and also being a mom, has informed how you've written Aesop Lake? Absolutely. Uh, I think that Aesop Lake has um, certainly been something that I I started thinking about back in 2014 and writing. Sorry about that. and writing, it, it was really driven a lot by um, some of the experiences that my daughter had as a young woman as she was coming out and sort of experiencing some bullying and some harassment in um, middle school in particular, and sort of knowing what that was a challenge, how that was a challenge, and we're not really in like rural, like severe rural Vermont, but we're certainly, um, we're in sort of the outskirts of Chittenden County. And even there she experienced yeah. some challenges. And I think that it, it was surprising to me that she would, and that it, um, was not as accepting by her peers, that they were still, I think, uh, uncomfortable with her trying to express any kind of mm-hmm. difference, and um, and that 
was definitely inspiring to you know it was like god how do kids grapple with this and so i think the impetus for this story um sort of spurred from that absolutely and i really see kind of the experience that you just described kind of reflected in jonathan also just the idea of being an outsider and not knowing what to expect in a new community why was it instrumental then to have him as someone not from vermont moving to vermont and experiencing this yeah uh i think that jonathan's perspective um because so many people kind of look at vermont right we had bernie sanders we have like pretty um progressive social agendas in Vermont. And we're one of the first uh, states to have gay marriage, you know, before it became national. We were the first state in the country to have civil unions. Um, There were just, there is this perception, I think, that the state is very progressive. And I'm not saying that it's not, Mm -hmm. but I do believe that um, there are pockets of rural places in all over this country and not just in Vermont and not just rural, but I do believe that people, there are pockets of people everywhere that don't necessarily go along with, you know, the progressive social agenda. And I think that it would be a misperception to not represent that here as well in Vermont. And so for me, having Jonathan come from the outside and come from Boston with these sort of high expectations and then experience something that was not what he expected, I think can be very real for kids um, who think, you know, maybe their parents have a different idea and it it doesn't always work out that way Mm -hmm. if we want it to. and so I think that, you know, kind of grappling with that a little bit and and talking through that challenge and thinking about how we do that. Um, part of the, the goal in this book is to really challenge Lita as um, one of the characters to think about how can she, is she an ally, right? And how can she be an ally? And um, how do you do that in a small community where the pressure is to kind of go with the the crowd. Absolutely. One of the parts of Aesop Lake that I appreciated most was just that it is a rural narrative as opposed to a kind of urban landscape. I think often in LGBTQ books, they're set in cities, as though it's easier to grapple with something when you have more resources and just more places to go. And I mm-hmm. thought the small town aspect was just instrumental in forming this kind of question of allyship for these people. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no, I loved that part of it. Um, so I think you've already kind of addressed how you see the need for Aesop Lake growing out of your own community, but I was wondering if you feel like Aesop Lake is kind of filling a void in the LGBTQ book market in terms of what we need locally or nationally. I hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I don't want to profess to be like the expert on LGBTQ mm-hmm. literature, you know, the things that I was looking at when I was doing some research and trying to figure out like what is out there and, and is my story unique or, you know, am I just retelling a story that's already been done a number of times? And I think there are a lot of 
novels for young adults about coming out and that coming out experience and whether it's negative or positive um, or you know everything in between um, that's a narrative that people are telling and I'm really glad they're telling that story and I think those have been great resources for my daughter but I haven't really heard the narrative talking about from both perspectives right of straight and gay and so how having a novel I think for young adults that has both perspectives which um, this is told from Lita's perspective and then every other chapter um, just about throughout the book is either Lita or Jonathan's voice and so Jonathan speaking from his queer identity and what he is experiencing and the harassment that he's witnessed and uh, been a part of, it, you know, just sort of holding those two together, I think is unique for what is going on in, in the current literature. So I think it's, my hope is that it won't be a book that is just for the LGBT community, but actually also really calls to, straight alliance, right? How do you, how do you be an ally? And hopefully it can spur conversations between kids across the spectrum. Absolutely. And I really do think it serves as a kind of call to allyship. It makes you question if you've become too stagnant in your community, or if your community has just assumed that everything's been all right for so long. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so kind of in that vein, I'm wondering, kind of, as you were formulating the narrative, what led you to an ending that's not necessarily kind of like that happy ending romance novel kind of book? Because I do often think LGBTQ books push into that vein a little bit, or other utter tragedy. And I was wondering why you kind of went for the middle of the road. So without giving away yeah. any... <laughs> any... Too many giveaways. Um, yeah, I... I, I really wanted Lita to be a strong female character without her being reliant on a relationship to drive her. I wanted her to have her own voice and her own message. And that, that I think was, I think there are just way too many teen books that sort of end up in that genre, right? Where it's all about, love and romance and everybody staying together and being, um, and that there's some happy ending. And I don't know that that's realistic, uh, or that we need to continue that. I think there are enough books that go there and I, you know, there's nothing terrible at the end of the no. books. So I don't want to tear people off, but I, I do think, um, that each of the characters, has a, a path forward, mm -hmm. but it might not be the path forward that is traditional. Absolutely. And they are all formulated in a way that feels so true to kind of the 16, 17, 18-year-old um, personality and perspective, because they're all yeah. learning to make mature choices. And I really think you see that develop through the course of the book. Good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. That was a good goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think you accomplished it. Um, so when you're reflecting on how you formulated the book and what led you to this narration and the plot, were there any writers who you were looking to as kind of examples in YA literature or in any literature that you were kind of hoping to follow in the footsteps of? 
Yeah, well, my one of my all-time favorite um, young adult authors is uh, Laurie Haltz Anderson. Uh, I loved her book Speak and Winter Girls, and um, uh, she just she has so many great novels out there. So I I feel like she takes on hard subjects. She's willing to grapple with like that time in life. She doesn't shy away and think, oh, we shouldn't talk about hard things, um, with young adults, which I think from my, you know, interactions, I've been a youth group leader for years, um, obviously raising kids. And I just think that they're hungering for that opportunity to talk about tough subjects. And when we just, you know, treat them as social beings who only want to talk about their friends or talk about, you know, their relationships with each other. Um, I think we miss the mark and sort of miss the opportunity to grapple with real issues um, that they ask questions about all the time. Sorry. Oh, okay. I don't know how to make that go away. So <laughs> sorry about that. It's okay. Um, so I, I do think, turn that down. I do think, um, young adults are, you know, the kids that I talk with anyway, they really appreciate when you have difficult conversations and you really give them an opportunity to say what they're worried about. Um, I remember after this recent election and, um, they were, you know, kids were really worried and concerned about what was going to happen. And we spent time just sitting around with a group of teenagers, just letting them say their fears, right. Letting them talk about what their, um, concerns were going to be and how frustrated they were with the current, with the way the adults were sort of letting the world <laughs> move forward. It was like, Oh yeah. Like, we don't always have it figured out. And these kids are thinking really seriously about very serious topics. Absolutely. I think that next, this next generation is going to save, save the world, you know, really do. <laughs> I'm so glad you think that. Um, I was wondering if you're comfortable now kind of venturing off into Aesop Lake and reading us sure. a passage and maybe giving whatever context you think we might need. Sure. So I'm going to read, uh, just the very first chapter, because I think it sort of puts you right into the scene and gives you a, a little bit of a taste of Lita's voice. So I'm going to read from um, Lita Keo, who's uh, 17, and she's with her boyfriend, David, and it, it sort of sets the context itself. But uh, I'm just going to read a couple pages here. So this is chapter one, Lita Kehoe, The Wolf. David and I ripped down the gravel road toward the town reservoir in a black pickup truck. The windows are down and the air blows in hot as if it were a steamy summer evening instead of May. My short brown hair is becoming a tangled mess, but I don't care. The air smells yellow like summer, though the forsythias have bloomed and faded. The ferns grow thick on the forest floor, and David reeks of motor oil and sweat. I turn my head towards him, 
following his scent with animal instinct. His tousled black hair and chiseled chin bring out the Italian on his mother's side, while his stocky short frame is all Portuguese, according to his mom. We fit perfectly together, though David's shoulders, broad from lifting weights for baseball, can lift my skinny ass up over his head like a bale of hay. I tip my nose towards my armpit and notice that my deodorant has stopped working. The water will help us wash clean. I want to be with David tonight to make up with him after our fight. I want him to know I'm not mad at him. It was stupid, really. He was just being a guy, cruising around the school like a rutting moose. He didn't really hurt anyone, just made stupid jokes. Misplaced jealousy, that's all it was. I had smiled and giggled and waved goodbye to Ricky as I left chemistry lab, forgetting David was going to walk me to art class, forgetting he sees green even when I talk to another guy. It doesn't matter if that guy is dating someone else or in this case is gay. David saw it happen and pulled me to the side as I left the classroom, then waited for Ricky to exit. He looped his arm with mine and stepped us in the wave of students, walking directly behind Ricky, taunting him under his breath, calling Ricky a fairy. He was mad all afternoon. I think I'll stop there. All right. Um, so it goes on to what happens at the reservoir. And... Um, I'm going to jump ahead just and give you one more paragraph from um, Jonathan's perspective, just so you get a flavor of both voices. So this is Jonathan Tanner Eels. Jonathan's also 17, going on 18. And this is chapter two, The Lamb. And I just want to read this one section right here so they are skinny dipping at the reservoir where Jonathan where David and Lita show up and um, things get pretty out of control pretty fast and so I'm going to jump right into the middle of that scene and just give you a little taste of what is coming down. I hear a blast and something ricochets off the rock next to Ricky's back. I'm so confused. I hear hollering in the distance and then screaming in my ear. I look down. It's coming from Ricky. Someone is yelling something about queers, but I can't understand it. I can't make out any faces, just the shape of two people. I grab Ricky's hand and pull him out into the water, his legs moving like the tin man. Are you okay? I ask. Ricky's face is terror-stricken. His eyes are bulging and he stares straight ahead. Come on, we have to swim away now. I try to pull Ricky into the deep water. His arms and legs will not move. The white witch has turned him to stone. He just stands there, knee-deep. I'm going to teach two queers a lesson, a voice declares, moving closer. Jesus, Ricky, we have to get out of here. Someone is coming. We have to swim away. I plead, but nothing snaps Ricky out of it. Hot tears run down my cheeks. Desperation clutches my heart. 
I've seen enough movies to know this is not going to end well. Thank you. That was wonderful. It's so powerful to hear you read it yourself. Thanks. Yeah, I've been actually working on recording it, so an audible version will come out soon. Great. That'll be coming out in maybe late August, I think. Yeah, might be closer to September because there's a a little bit of um, technical work that has to happen to do some editing and mastering, (laughs) but hopefully, hopefully by September. Great. So after hearing your read from both characters' perspectives, I think one thing that I'm wondering is how you came to write from Lita's perspective. Why was it important for you to have her be a female witness to this violence? Because often we see, I think in media and movies especially, that the perpetrators of violence are men. And so why was it useful to hear from her and not David, for instance? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, A couple of people have asked me that. Why did I not write from David's perspective? I think I really, the message that was the most important to me was to really think about who is that in-between person that really is the ally and can be the ally, because we can unpack all kinds of reasons about why people commit violent acts or, you know, what went on in their own childhood backgrounds or trauma or um, abuse or that sort of lead to get there. And I think there have been lots of stories that have been written from that perspective, but not necessarily that. um, So you're not the person who is committing the harm, but don't we have a right? Don't we have a, a obligation as citizens to like stand up for each other. And when you see something not happening that, you know, or happening that shouldn't happen, you know, uh, not going well, like, where's that line? Where do we draw that line where we actually step up and we say, Hey, this isn't okay. Like I wouldn't necessarily expect Lita to, you know, get in the middle of what happened because she probably would have gotten hurt as well. But, then what's her obligation to then come forward to the authorities or tell adults or, you know, other people who can help. And she doesn't do that right away. And so that becomes sort of like, you know, how do we sort of teach morals and ethics and obligations? Um, One of the things we haven't talked about yet, but this book is named Aesop Lake and I use three Aesop fables, which I think many kids are familiar with them to some extent because they teach them in like kindergarten and first grade and, and they seem very simple, but I think there's this idea that they have more moral stories, right? We've used the human race has used stories to sort of teach children for years how to address a situation or think about a particular situation and Aesop fables do that. And so I selected Aesop fables um, that really have a powerful story or like moral lesson. And I don't, you know, I don't really refer to them in the whole novel. I just use them as sort of the framework of the story because I feel like, this is what we're 
what we're grappling with. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want it to be preachy. I'm not trying to say like, we all have to think the same way, but I think there's something for us to unpack and think about there. Absolutely. And I think interestingly in the novel, each fable is accompanied by an illustration, which is mm-hmm. somewhat unusual in YA. And I was just wondering how you came to the conclusion that you wanted to include some kind of picture. And if you feel like it adds a little bit more meat maybe to the story. Yeah. Um, well, I uh, really wanted to include the fables. And every time that I looked at the fables, there are lots of drawings and, you know, they really orient kids. And I also think we're working in such a visual world now where kids are really, you know, have so many visual things coming at them. And I thought this is a great opportunity to put a little bit of visual connection into the book and into the fable for people to just connect with. And then I had this great opportunity of having my daughter, um, who is studying illustration, um, offer to do the drawings. So I said, if you want to do them, then we'll give it a shot and see how it goes over. And Thankfully, uh, Didi was super supportive as the publisher of having her illustrations in there. And it was a good, it's kind of a win-win for all of us. That's wonderful. I love knowing that your whole family has been involved in the kind of production of the book in little bits and ways. Just because we do see in the book some different kinds of families. Lena's Uh family is very complicated. Jonathan's family is also very complicated. And seeing them balance that, I think, is really intrinsic to understanding how young adults are living in the world. How did you decide to include so many different kinds of family? Well, I think that comes from working in child protection (laughs) and social work for so many years and really seeing, you know, there really isn't one type of family. And we, um, there's we're all, no matter, you know, different people call different uh, setups, who their family is might not always be defined by blood, right? And who you're, you feel um, the most connected to might not always be the person who is your parent or your um, caregiver. And I, I feel like in this, in Lita's story in particular, her brother plays a really significant sort of parental role and in some ways more parental than her mom. And uh, that I think is true for many kids, right? Sometimes their older sibling is the one that really supports them and and reaches out. So I, I just feel like that is helps provide an opportunity for the reader to connect no matter what their situation is. We know that it's not all perfect for everyone and, and that's okay. You can still find support and connection no matter what your family looks like. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think kind of in that vein, I like that you framed different kind of resolutions, allowing people to stay or leave a community and understand that maybe the right option for one character is to leave while the right option for another is to stay and make it stronger. Yeah. 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 Um, Just to kind of circle back to Lita and her role as a witness and ally, how do you feel people become allies? Mm -hmm. And should everyone know that they're an ally 
that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. how do how do you feel like allies are made? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that um, parents, adults, teachers certainly can have influence over sort of helping to create allies in a community, certainly teaching kids tolerance, teaching kids like openness and acceptance of each other, I think is key and really critical. And ultimately, um, we can't just assume that because you teach that openness and that connection that everyone knows exactly what to do. I think, um, being an ally and saying, you know, I support these causes or I really believe um, that, you know, everyone deserves an opportunity to be seen and heard. That's, it's easy to say that, but to actually then step up and do the right thing, I think is much more complicated and difficult. And uh, particularly when kids are so they do really desire and want to feel accepted. And so if their main peer group is not accepting someone for some reason, or, you know, they know that someone is being mistreated by their friends, um, they may not feel empowered or like it's safe to really speak up and say, Hey, I don't think that that's okay, that you're not treating that person well. And I, I think we have to really teach kids how to have those conversations and how to speak up um, and how to safely assess a situation and say, you know, maybe I could have this conversation with my friend um, one-on-one and I probably, you know, shouldn't confront them in the moment when they're like being harassing somebody, but it should be okay for me to say, you know, I felt really uncomfortable when you said that thing to so-and-so and have that dialogue and have that conversation. And they might risk that friendship, but they might actually, um, you know, get a response that they don't expect that, you know, that other, that friend might say, Hey, I didn't realize that I was being that way, or I didn't, you know, realize that anybody cared or noticed or whatever, you know, and I think that there's a lot of assumptions that sometimes get made and people avoid confrontation (laughs) to all, you know, to the nth degree sometimes. Um, and that can be for many, many reasons. Uh, but I, I think we have to give kids the tools to have those hard conversations and not assume that they're just going to grow up and know how to do it. And and, um, I, for one, you know, want to support kids uh, being able to speak up and say what they need to say and feel empowered to, you know, keep themselves safe, keep them, keep their friends safe. Absolutely. And I love in the book how we see Lita kind of struggle with this, Mm -hmm. wanting to be accepted, wanting to keep everything the same, keep her boyfriend, but also knowing that she's witnessed something that wasn't right. Yeah. And I thought kind of her emotional journey was really faithful to the mind and life of a 17-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering why you chose to have her go through that away from home, a kind of in the Aesop figure lakes, I think. Yeah. Yeah, she, um, you know, I think that sometimes um, 
being faced with all the pressures of what your family also puts on kids for expectations can make it really hard to grow away from that. And I think, you know, there's this need in adolescence to sort of push back away from your family of origin and kind of become your own person. And uh, I definitely gave Lita the opportunity to do that by entering into a different family situation. But at the same time that she was entering like a kind of a more stable, healthy family system as a nanny, um, she also ends up, right, confronting Jonathan, which sort of is like, oh my gosh, this didn't really work out the way I planned. (laughs) And I think um, that that is kind of real for life, right? That we we try to separate ourselves and go off and do our own thing. And kids do that at college and they, they do that by going off to take a gap year and go travel. And yet you still have to face people with different ideas and um, challenges and you still have to sort through who am I and what do I believe and what am I going to do that's different. So that's part of why I did that. The other reason I did that, I, you know, just to be honest, is um, I went to a place that is very much like Aesop Lake is described, and I got to visit this beautiful camp um, with all these um, buildings and a, the kitchen house and the rec house, and I just loved that setting so much. I was like, oh, I want a story to be based here. <laughs> like, I had pictures of the place, and it just was just a phenomenal opportunity to kind of go, this would be the perfect place for a story to happen. And then when I came up with the story for Aesop Lake, I was like, Oh, I know exactly where this needs to be set. That's awesome. I think it's great that you're just honest that like you went to a really cool place and sometimes cool places I think need stories to happen. there. Yeah. Yeah. You get inspired. Right. So then it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking a trip uh, up to Europe this summer. I'm hoping maybe something will inspire me there for my next story. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So this question isn't necessarily about Aesop Lake in particular, sure. but I'm just wondering how long it took you to kind of formulate the story and write it and get to this point where it's coming out and is out by the time people are hearing this. Well, I definitely started writing the first full draft in 2015. So, um, Yeah. So here it is 2018 (laughs) and, you know, it was still being copy edited just a month ago. (laughs) So I think that uh, it takes a long time. It's a lot longer of a process putting a book together and getting it all ready and edited. And, you know, this has gone through so many renditions from the very first um, part, you know, had three voices and Marsha was a main character and I had to, cut her out as a main character and add in, you know, cut 10 chapters and add four. And there's a lot of rewriting that went on in this process. And, um, but I feel like it became a much stronger book and really uh, had a stronger story to tell. So um, it's a writing is not for the weak of heart for sure. (laughs) No. And often I think when you're reading a kind of book, a book like this, you know, the reading isn't even for the weak of heart. And I'm excited to see how people are going to respond to it. Yeah, thanks. Me too. I, hopefully people will love it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think just personally seeing a book that confronts problems in Vermont is important to me because often, well, one, books don't often get set in Vermont and often they kind of portray the kind of idealized liberal heaven that we see often reflected in media. Well, thanks. I I hope that that's the case. I'm sure that there will be some pushback. You know, people will say, well, how can you do this or, you know, make Vermont look this way. And it wasn't really my intention to make Vermont look a particular way, but I think um, that there is the intention to show that these disparaged, you know, sort of ideas, they exist. They exist all over this country. And I think we'd be, you know, putting our our heads down and not seeing reality if we didn't face the fact that this is true. There are people even in the state who definitely are not or don't come across as allies, you know, and, and um, I'd love us to be able to have that conversation. Like how can we help people to get further along down that road towards equality for all and, and, really let in particular let the lgbtq community know that they have a right to be seen and heard and a part of the conversation absolutely thank you so much for chatting with me is there anything else that you want to let us know about the book that maybe i didn't think to ask uh no i don't think so i hope that people enjoy it i I hope that people will um Come and find me on my website, sarahwardvt.com, and um, you can find me on all the social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And um, certainly, if anyone, you know, any teachers or librarians are out there and they're interested in having this conversation with kids, yeah, I'm more than open to sitting down and Um, you know, helping them get that conversation going in the back of the book, there's a resource guide. Um, there's some links that people can go on to on online, but there's also a discussion guide for starting this conversation. And I'd be happy to come and facilitate that happening. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So we at Take a Leaf are incredibly grateful to Sarah Ward for appearing on our first show. As she said, she can be found at sarahwardvt.com and on Twitter and Instagram at sarahwardvt. Aesop Lake is out now through Midpoint Distribution and is available for sale on IndieBound or on order through your independent bookstore. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. (laughs) Bye. Take a Leaf is a project of Green Writers Press, giving voice to writers and artists who will make the world a better place. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Heather McCabe. Music was used courtesy of the Free Music Archive. You can contact Green Writers Press on Twitter at Green Writers Pub and me at HMcCabeVT. Wishing you the best from Brattleboro, Vermont, this has been Take a Leaf. <laughs>